Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 40, 27 through 30. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sarah. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own, with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven, in company with Jesus, our Messiah. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Rick. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 5, 1 through 6. After this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate in the north city wall, is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. It had five covered porches, and a crowd of people who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed sat there. A certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, Knowing that he had already been there a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Great to be with all of you on this snowy Sunday morning. Thanks for gathering as the church, with the church, uh, for the glory of the Lord. My name is Glenn Packham. I'm the pastor here. Uh, before we open up the scriptures and look a little more closely at the verses that we've heard read this morning, I just wanted to tell you about some, an opportunity that you'll have uh, coming up in December. Um, we, a lot of times throughout the years past, we've done like an end of year kind of giving thing, but this year we're doing something different where we're going to make our end of year giving specifically focused on our outreach project. So some of you may not even be aware of all the great work that's happening in the city and actually around the world um, through some of the team here at New Life. So uh, sitting right here is Matthew Ayers. He's the director of the Dream Centers of Colorado Springs. And there's a women's clinic that is part of that. They have, they have, give Matthew a hand. That's great. There's a women's clinic that's part of that. There's Mary's Home that's part of that. And Mary's Home, you, you remember a few weeks ago, we showed you that 10-day project, the extreme dream thing. Well, there's, there's an opportunity to give towards funding that and its ongoing work towards uh, funding our um, Nueva Vida, our Spanish-speaking congregation in the, in the center of our city in a neighborhood that really needs uh, continual strength and, and, and reinforcement. And so we're going to give each, on each Sunday in December, we're going to have an opportunity to say, 
how can we use our resources to become good news for our city? And so we're calling this offering all throughout December the For the Sake of the City offering. For the Sake of the City offering. Last week, Pastor Jason gave a great sermon on Zacchaeus, and he said that the result of Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus was that his own life became good news for the poor. And I just love that. I love phrasing it that way, that what would happen when we realize that our time, our, 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 our treasures, our stuff, everything that we have is really meant to be in the service of the Lord and become good news for the poor. So each Sunday when we give as part of our worship, uh, that, that's really a way of saying, look, Lord, our first and our best belongs to you. It's a symbolic picture of our lives belonging to you. Some Christians, we call that a tithe uh, to indicate kind of this pre-decision decision to give. But there's opportunities to do more than that, to actually live generous lives and to give extravagantly and give sacrificially. And so this is a chance for you to do that. So think about it, pray about it over the next couple of weeks. And then every sun Sunday in December, we'll highlight a different aspect of our outreach ministries, both locally and uh, globally, and give you an opportunity to give. So will you pray with me about doing that in December? Yes? Amen. Very enthusiastic. Lovely. Okay, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll continue with the scriptures this morning. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, your word that speaks life and light to us. And as we listen to it, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would quicken our hearts and do your work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. There's good news about millennials. Millennials, as it turns out, are the most committed to self-improvement of any other generation so far, or at least any other generation alive. Now listen to this. In 2015, 81% of Gen Xers reported making commitments to self-improvement. 81%, that's pretty good. Boomers were a little better. Boomers reported in 2015 to making, 84% of boomers said we made commitments to self-improvement. I mean, that's wonderful. But for millennials, 94% of millennials reported making commitments towards self-improvement in 2015. Now, I know what you're thinking, you non-millennials. You're thinking, easy to say, but what did they actually do? Well, there's good news there, too. And so where, where, where boomers spend about an average of $150 a month on self-improvement type of things, and that could be diet and eating, or it could be therapy, or it could be life coaching, or it could be, you know, boomers spend about 150 bucks a month on that. Millennials spend 300 bucks a month on self-improvement, on growth. So in a sense, not only are millennials saying, I care about this and I want to make these commitments, but they're actually investing in it, saying, let's do this, let's really improve. But the point is, we seem to be more committed than ever before towards growth and becoming healthier and better. And I think all in all, that's a good thing. And it tends to actually fit with the American narrative. One of the great uh, um, American sort of um, narratives, or if you could call it a mythology, is the, is the American myth of the self-made person. The one who sort of endures hardship, pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. And in, in many cases, well, that's not a myth because we can look at this story and this story and this story, and it's a wonderful thing. And so marketers who are clever tap into this narrative, tap into this kind of uniquely cultural story. And so even decades ago, Nike came up with their slogan to just do it. I mean, just get it. And, and they, you, know, you pair it with graphics and images of someone running and someone leaping, and you're like, yes, I can do it. Except when I see those, I think, I can't just 
do it. You know, I'm not just going to get out of bed before the sun's up and run five miles. I'm just not. And then Apple, you know, more recently, their, their slogan was think different. An idea that sort of says to you, look, if you're thinking this way, it's fine. Just change that. Just think different. Just you can do it. You can change it. Both of these slogans and many more like them seem to imply that we have the power, except for Lay's potato chips. They're my favorite. Because Lay's knows we don't have any power. And so the slogan for Lay's potato chips is, betcha can't just eat one. <laughs> now that's a slogan I can get behind, you know? Amen to that. Now, the idea of taking responsibility for yourself and for your own growth is a wonderful thing. Generally, the trajectory from immaturity into maturity involves some measure of taking responsibility for yourself. Parents, we know this. We're trying to help our kids do And actually, as a Christian, you'd say, maybe the next step is to take responsibility for someone else, right? Uh, the Bible story of Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? The implicit reply being, you're supposed to be, right? Or the man who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So we might say, yes, it's good. Take responsibility for yourself. Eventually learn how to take responsibility for others. All of those things are good insofar as they go. But every once in a while, we hit a reminder in life that we are not as powerful as we had hoped. And so all of this stuff, the, the cultural push to just do it and think differently and you can do that and you can do all of a sudden, it all feels good until you find yourself stuck. And when you find yourself stuck, it can be a very lonely place. And it's maybe made worse by the fact that when you're stuck, you often notice all the other people who don't seem to be stuck. And so you look at your own life and you feel like you're just on the hamster wheel and you're going round and round, you can't get out of this cycle, and you look at so-and-so's Instagram pictures and that person's Facebook posts, and you just feel shame. Because you're like, why am I stuck? And they're not stuck. Like, come on! So it's, what's wrong with me? We're in this series here on people who've had encounters with Jesus. And actually today is the last installment of this series because the next couple Sundays will be standalones. And, and this has been a series where we've looked at people who've had these encounters with Jesus in the Gospels where things began to change in their life. And today we're going to look at John 5, the story of a man who was stuck. And not just stuck, but so stuck that he had no friends who could even help him. You know, there's that other story that one of the gospel tells us of, uh, of the guy who was paralyzed, but at least he had friends, right? He had friends who carried him to Jesus and tore down the roof and lowered him. And you're like, man, bummer for you, but cool that you had good friends. This dude that we're going to hear about today in John 5, so stuck that he actually doesn't even have friends who can help him. He's stuck, stuck. So John chapter 5, if you've got a Bible, you can follow along, or uh, if you want to read on the screen, you can do that. After this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate in the north city was a pool, uh, is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. It had five covered porches and a crowd of people who sat there, a crowd of people who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed sat there. Now, most newer translations skip verse 4 because verse 4 is built on, on less reliable manuscripts. But verse 4 tells this kind of legend of an angel would appear and stir the waters and then people would get healed. And so if you're wondering why we jump from verse 3 to verse 5, that, that's why. It's kind of maybe not as reliable of a, of an ins, of a little a note there, but helpful perhaps to keep in the backdrop. 
Verse 5, a certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, now this is a bit of the mystery of the sovereignty of God because there's a whole bunch of sick people there. John's already told us lots of people who are sick and lame and paralyzed, but Jesus saw him. And why he's picked out, singled out, I'm not sure. And there's some bit of mystery to, to, to all of this. But Jesus saw him, knowing that he'd been there a long time, and he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. When I'm trying to get to it, someone else has gotten in ahead of me. So Jesus asks a question that seems to be all about desire. Do you want to get well? But the man answers, not about desire, but about power. And he says, I don't know about whether I want to or not. I can't. You see, one of the things that we mistakenly believe about life is that if we want something bad enough, we can get it. And this is what we believe because so much of our world works this way. Well, if you want to do that, you can just go do that. And you, if you want a loan, you go get a loan. If you want to start a business, start a business. And all of those things are wonderful in so many ways, except that when it comes to the ultimate and most important things in life, we start to believe that we can just do it if we want it bad enough. If you want to save yourself, you can save yourself. If you want to change yourself, you can change yourself. If you can conceive it, you can receive it. If you can believe it. You can achieve it. Hallelujah. And Jesus is exposing this almost by asking a leading question. Do you want to get well? And the man's like, man, I can't even talk about what I want. It doesn't matter what I want. It reminds me of the story later when the disciples will, will say the spirit is willing, or Jesus will, will say to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's a guy who's like, I don't even know. Does it even matter if I want it? Like, that. You know, I think about the very few times I've joined like a gym health class where the, the instructor's like, come on, do you want it? You've got to want it. You got, and I'm thinking, I don't really want it. <laughs> and Jesus knows this is a leading question. Do you want to get well? And the guy's like, well, I mean, does it matter? Because I don't have the power to get well. And right off the bat, the first thing we're meant to see in this story is that we are powerless to save ourselves. We cannot actually save ourselves. We can't bring about the change that we actually desire. We cannot save ourselves. And then in verse 8, Jesus said to the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man was well. And he picked up his mat and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting because John's gospel in so many ways parallels the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. And so you have all this stuff of, you know, Genesis begins with in the beginning, God created, right? John 1 begins, in the beginning was the word. And there's all these, we've already pointed this out in some of the other sermons, there's all these little allusions between light and dark, like the Genesis story, and the light of the world and the darkness not comprehending the light. John's playing with this in our minds. And you know what John knows? He knows that in the Genesis story, it's the words of God that changed everything. In the Genesis story, when God speaks, something happens. In the Genesis story, there was darkness, but God spoke and there was light. The first words from God in the book of Genesis are, let there be light and there was light. 
And then it goes on, and the rest of the creation story is God speaking and things happening, God speaking and reality changing, God speaking and things coming into existence. And so when John tells this miracle story, he's trying to get us to see this is the word of God. This is the one through whom all things are made, as Paul would say in Colossians. This is the one who called out the stars in the heavens. And so Jesus says to the man, get up. And the man immediately gets up. You see, when Jesus speaks, his commands actually carry the power to obey. When Jesus speaks, his commands actually carry the power to obey. This is what makes Jesus more than just a good teacher. This is what makes Jesus more than just a wise sage or or a clever philosopher. Jesus' words carry the authority of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Amen? Amen. Now, a friend of mine shared a story recently of a conversation he overheard and a a father and his 12-year-old son, and the boy had kind of, you know, messed up and done something wrong, and the dad says to him, son, how many times have I told you? And the son looks at his father, face just crestfallen. He says, Dad, how many times have I told myself? And you just break because you know our words don't change people. You can scold, you can lecture, you can do all of these things, but our words don't carry the power to obey. Only Jesus. That when Jesus speaks, when the word of God is breathed into our hearts. Only then, a new power arises. And so I want to look this morning at the three phrases that Jesus says to this man. The three phrases that he says to him that carry a power. The first phrase, get up. Get up. In the Greek, this, this word, up, is used in John's gospel specifically about resurrection. There are a couple of Greek words used for, for resurrection, but in John's gospel, in John 2, John sort of foreshadows that Jesus will be raised from the dead, and he uses the same word, John 2. And so here we are in John 5 when Jesus says, get up. This is a word of resurrection. It's, a, it's the same word used in John 11 when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the dead, out of the grave. Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus was raised And so you see the power of Jesus' words. This is a word of resurrection. This is a word of resurrection. And this is what makes Jesus good news. Jesus is not the original self-help guru who came to teach us a better way to be human. I mean, there's some truth to that, but we can't stop short there. Right? Jesus isn't the first Deepak Chopra or Eckhart Tolle or Oprah. Jesus is not bringing good advice or good insights. Jesus brings good news because he is the resurrection and the life. 
He is the resurrection and life. This is what Jesus will say in John's gospel in John 11. He says, no, 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 Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And so when I speak, resurrection life happens. And that's why the gospel is good news because it's not good advice about how bad people can become nicer people or how bad people can sort of self-improve. The gospel is good news because it's a word that makes dead people come alive for the first time. Paul will say this, we, read, we heard it in our New Testament reading in Ephesians 2, where Paul will say, you were dead in your sins. He doesn't want us to think that our problem was just, you know, we kind of made some bad choices. Yeah, sort of, you know, kind of had some little mistakes. Whoops. You know, Paul's like, oh, let's get this straight. You didn't just sin. You were under the power of sin. And you weren't just under the power of sin, you were dead in your sin. You have to comprehend that death is the end of all possibilities. Death is the end of all potential. Humanly speaking, death is the end of all possibility. But God, but God is the God of resurrection. God is the God who raises the dead. And so when Jesus says to this paralyzed man who is stuck, and he says to him, get up. That word creates life in him. And then the second phrase that Jesus says is pick up your mat. I love this. I mean, you think the guy probably loved his mat. 38 years he and his mat had shared together. I like that mat. It's my mat. 38 years, me and the mat go way back. Jesus says, pick it up. We're done with that era of your life. We're done. Pick up your mat is a word of ending. It's a word of ending. See, many of us, we think, okay, good, good. I've been saved. I've experienced the word of resurrection. Now I'll just go back to life, right? Like I got Jesus plus. Like Jesus plus my old way of living. Jesus plus my selfishness. Jesus sort of plus my, you know, own sort of selfish ambitions, and Jesus is like, when I speak the word of resurrection to you, it comes along with a word of ending to an old way of life. You don't get resurrection power and then say, thanks, I'm going to go put the grave clothes back on now. Like, thanks, Jesus, for speaking resurrection to me, Lazarus Law. I'm going to go chill in the tomb again. He says, no, no, come forth. When Jesus speaks a word of resurrection, he wants you to leave an old way behind. In this story, and we'll see this in verse 14, Jesus connects this man's sickness to sin. Now, we have to be clear about this. Not every sickness is the result of sin, okay? We can't have Christians running around judging people and saying, well, I know what you did, or wondering and gossiping, saying, oh, I think you may be. That, that, that's not true. In fact, John himself will dismantle that theology because a few chapters later, there's a story of a guy who's, who's sick, and, and, and the, the religious leaders are convinced that it's because of his or his parents' sin. You remember this? And Jesus says, no, yeah, no, no, it's not him or his parents. It's for the glory of God. So, so you can't, it's not, it's not so cut and dry. You can't make, right? But in this story, sickness and sin are linked because Jesus says to him, now stop sinning lest something worse happens to you, right? And so when, when Jesus says, pick up your mat, that is a picture of ending an old way of life. Whatever went with that, Whatever went with that, all the stuff that went with how you used to live for 38 years, Jesus is like, time to put it away. Time to pick it up. Be done with it. Roll it up. It's over now. 
What's a mat? If we were to be kind of employ our, our Holy Spirit-inspired biblical imagination here, maybe we'd say a mat is the thing or the things that we depend on or become comfortable with that is ultimately keeping us stuck in the same place or in the same patterns. Something that we depend on or become comfortable with that keeps us stuck. What could that be? Well, it could be resentment and bitterness. Do you know there are people who, who love telling you the same old story of how someone hurt them? Well, you know, my mother. And, da, 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 da. and I, look, there's a healthy place for counseling and processing. But there's another place that we go to where all of a sudden that becomes the map that keeps us stuck. You know, well, I, don't, I can't move past that because you don't know what my mother did. What my father, and I'm just, I'm just going to keep telling that story over and over again. Maybe it's lust, or pornography, something you say, well, I just, yeah, I just dabble a little bit. It's okay. Some of us, you keep doing the same thing. You keep going to the same places and wondering why nothing's different in your life. Like, I can't meet any good people. They're just no good guys. But I love going to cowboys on Friday nights. Nervous laughter. <laughs> now, I can't tell you what your mat is. I can't tell you what it is for you and what it is for someone else. Because sometimes your mat is not something that is blatantly sin. And even two people might be doing the same thing, but for different reasons. Counselors talk about the ways that we self-medicate with things that become addictive. And so there's a, there's a wound or, or something that you never let Jesus heal. But you found other ways to just keep you comforted in the midst of it. So that could be, you know, Josh and John's ice cream. Or it could be tequila, you know? Right? It, it, it could be video games. You're like, I just can't get out there. I just... Or it could be marijuana. What's the thing that you're using to just keep you comfortable, ignoring the pain, but without realizing it, it's actually keeping you stuck? It's your mat. It's got you stuck in the same place, in the same pattern, and you don't want to give it up because 38 years is a long time. And Jesus says, I've already spoken the word of resurrection. Now I want to speak a word of ending. Put this away. Be done with it. Be done with it. There's a great children's story in the Frog and Toad books, and I can't remember which one does what, so let's just say Frog is the one who bakes the cookies. You remember this, parent, right? And they're eating the cookies, and, and then, uh, you know, Frog says, we, you know, Toad says, I think, man, well, let's just say it's Toad. Toad says, we gotta be done, we gotta stop eating these cookies. We need self control. And Frog says, why do we need self-control? Toad says, because we, we need to. And so Toad says, let's put the cookies in a box. And Frog says, but we can just open the box. And Toad says, let's put the box up high. And Frog says, but we can climb on a ladder and get the cookies back down. And Toad says, let's put a string on the box. And Frog says, we can cut the string, you know. And finally, Toad says, let's just give the cookies to the birds. And then the birds eat it. And Frog goes, why'd you do that? And he says, because now we have self-control. And Frog says, well, you can keep your self-control. I'm going to go bake a cake. You know? 
And I think that's like us. The Holy Spirit, remember, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control is not a self-help thing. It's the result of the Holy Spirit. And imagine the Holy Spirit is, is trying to say to you, put this away. I want to help you develop self-control. And we keep saying, eh, I think I'm going to go bake a cake. I want something else. I, I want to do this again. It's fine, right? Don't be so legalistic. Don't be so Jesus-y. Don't be so judgy. Why, why are Christians so judgy? What if it's not actually judgy, but that we want you to be free, that your mat is keeping you stuck, and the word of the Lord to you is, put it away, put it away, pick it up, get rid of it. And then the third word Jesus says is walk. Now, walk in the Bible is not just the literal one foot in front of the other. I mean, there, there is that too. But walk, especially Hebrew, is such a, a metaphor, idiomatic language that walk is often used to, to represent a way of living. And so Psalm 1 says, don't walk in the way of sinners, right? This is the way, walk you in it. The New Testament picks this up. And so the, the way that these Jewish followers of Jesus begin to use this word walk is in a similar way. And Paul will say in Ephesians, after telling them that they were dead in their sin and that they're now raised up, Paul will say, and now walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. God has spoken the word of resurrection. God has spoken the word of ending. And now he speaks the word of a new beginning. Begin now. Begin now. Practice this. You ever seen a person who hasn't walked for a long time? I talked to someone today who is recovering from knee surgery, and the next step after knee surgery is physical therapy. Why? Because you got to learn how to walk now with this bionic knee, right? And, and, and so in a similar way, we're, we're going to need our community. We're going to need the right kinds of friends, we're gonna, and it's going to take practice, and it's going to take patience. But Jesus says, walk, walk. Walk in a new way now. Practice a new way of living. And maybe you're listening to this and you think, well, I mean, it's just kind of an old, cute story about Jesus. I mean, what does that have to do with our world? John 5, verse 14, Jesus says to the man, he says, see, you've been made well. Don't sin anymore in case something worse happens to you. In John 5, you see both sin and sickness. And in a very simple way, both sin and sickness are evidence of evil in the world. If you just say, what's wrong with the world? When you look at disease and the way it unfairly ends lives, you know, that's evil. And then you look at sin and the way that wickedness in human hearts leads people to just slaughter others for no reason. And you think, my God, that is evil, right? Think of the times you've said that, even in the last week, as you read the headlines. Oh, my God, that, that is evil. Sin and sickness are both evidence of evil in the world. And whether you're a Christian or not, in some way, no doubt, you've asked the question, who will deliver us from evil? Who will deliver us from evil? Who will rescue us from this condition? And maybe you've never said it in, the way, in, this, in these words, you've never said, I'm stuck, or the world is stuck, or the world is messed up, but, but in some way, you've come up against this, and you've felt it, and you've said, gosh, it doesn't feel like it's, and you know how you know it, is when you say a phrase like, who would have thought in 2018, and then you, you fill in the blank, you know, there's, 
uh, uh, violence in the name of racism or whatever, and and you start to list certain things. You know what that says? That says that you kind of thought that just because time progressed that the human heart would progress. Who would have thought in 2018, the next time someone says that, say, you're really asking who can deliver us from evil. And the answer is not progress, and the answer is not civilization, and the answer is not that we will find a better way. The answer to the eternal age, or the age-old question throughout human history of who can deliver us from evil is only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. John's gospel wants us to see this. Jesus, the Son of God, has been manifest to destroy the works of the evil one destroy it as it shows up in sickness, to destroy it as it shows up in sin, to destroy the works of the evil one. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah was talking to the people of God and he knew that they were stuck. They were stuck. Stuck in a cycle of sin and idolatry. Worshiping false gods, falling prey to enemies, stuck. And Isaiah spends the first 39 chapters talking about the consequences of being stuck. <laughs> and if you, if you ever, I mean, I'm, I'm going through this actually in my devotions. I'm listening to it on the audio Bible while I'm going for a walk. And it's pretty dark, you know, <laughs> not the light outside, like, but Isaiah. And it's bleak. It's like the first 39 chapters, you're like, whoo. The world is stuck. And then Isaiah 40. Then Isaiah 40. And Isaiah says, there's a light breaking. Comfort my people. Comfort my people. There's a messenger coming with hope. In the end of Isaiah 40, the prophet says this. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Let's personalize this. Why do you complain, new life? Why do you say, Jim, Martha? Why do you say, Betsy? Why do you say, Steve? Why do you say, Peter? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. The prophet wants to stand up and shout, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In other words, God never gets stuck. God never hits a dead end. God never finds himself paralyzed, unable to move. His understanding no one can fathom. And he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even millennials and their $300 a month in self-improvement will grow tired and weary. And young men and women, boomers and Gen Xers will stumble and fall. And all the self-help gurus of the world will one day die. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and they will soar on wings like eagles and they will run and not grow weary and they will walk 
and not fakes. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus sees us in our powerless state and speaks the words that save. Jesus sees us in our powerless state and speaks the words that save. And so this morning, wherever you are, God sees you. God sees you. God sees you. And Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to you today. Are you stuck? Get up. Are you comfortable with an old pattern that isn't getting you anywhere? Pick it up. Are you unsure about what's next? Walk in this new way. Christians, we never outgrow this. You don't say, oh, Jesus, that was pretty good. I'll take it from here. (laughs) In fact, the way the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit is it says, for those who trust in Christ, their inner being is being renewed daily, daily. Daily we are renewed. Someone said to N.T. Wright, he says, how come we are only baptized once, but we have communion frequently? And he says, because you only need to be born again once, but you need to eat to sustain yourself regularly. So we come to the Lord's table as a way of saying again and again and again, yeah, I'm still here, Lord. (laughs) I still need your strength. I can't pick up my own map. I can't walk in a new way unless you say the word, get up, unless you speak. And like Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Did you bow your heads this morning? Maybe this morning, it's a moment for you to say, God, I'm stuck, and I thought I could fix this. I thought I could just try to be a better person, figure this out. But I need you. Today can be the first day that you say this. Jesus, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I put my trust in you. Jesus, I need you to speak the word of salvation. Others of you, you you know that. But there's something that the Lord is saying to you this morning that's convicting you of a mat that you need to pick up. An old bitterness or pattern or lust or an old practice, an old thing that maybe was innocent enough when it began, but now you're like, I... I don't know. I think this is keeping me stuck. That's the invitation of the Holy Spirit to say, come on, pick it up. Put it away. Be done with that. Be done with that. By his power. And then there are others of you that need to hear the word walk. This invitation into a new life, a new way to love and 
give, become good news for others. Walk. Yeah, like a toddler, you walk and stumble, but that's okay. The father says, it's okay, come on, keep walking. Let's try three steps this time. Let's do it, come on. I got you. Don't give up. Don't quit. Jesus sees you. Jesus is speaking to you. Calling to you. Keep waiting on the Lord. Keep coming again and again and again because those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength.